I welcome any just joining us now. I'm Joel, and we are in the book of Esther. We're turning to chapter 4 today, and we're coming to the crucible moment in this stunning story. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, your devices. I already find it printed in your bulletin wonderfully. We have been looking at the true events that happened in a kingdom long, long ago, about 2,500 years ago. The vast Persian Empire was ruled by King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. He's an insecure egomaniac. And in chapter 3, we saw him promote Haman, an evil guy, to the highest position in the government. Haman the Horrible, I'm going to title him that, because he is an ancient antichrist, seeking to advance Satan's cause in this day. And chapter 3 ended with the king approving Haman's extermination edict. Haman got the king to approve judgment day for the Jews, for God's people. Every last Jewish man, woman, girl, and boy are going to be gone, slaughtered. Do you see the stakes here? If this happens, Satan wins. No Jews, no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation for you. This is utter disaster if Haman's plan plays out. But we know it won't. God actually gave us this story to teach us about providence, which I want to define as God's purposeful sovereignty. Piper used that term. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. I think we understand sovereignty. We just sang about it. The Almighty who created the cosmos, set the stars in place, who made the birds and the bees, he has unending absolute authority over everything. His control extends individually to every star that he named and he moves them as he wills as he does the little ant that he moved along the way and you stepped on this morning on your way in. But providence actually goes further than sovereignty. It tells us about God's purposeful sovereignty. See, God has a glorious goal at the end of history. And he is intimately involved always in seeing that through. And it leads to your salvation if you believe. Providence tells us that as the Almighty God has the massive sun in his hand, he's moving it about, he has his other hand on teeny tiny little us, humanity, positioning his people to fulfill his purposes. God has purposeful sovereignty in placing Mordecai and Esther in pagan Persia. And for you and I who are here this morning, it is his purpose and his pleasure to actually bring us through trials in order to reveal his glory and to bring us into good. That means that no one, no Satan, no scoundrel, no no saboteur, nothing, no sin, no shame, no situation you're in right now can prevent God's sovereign purpose from coming to pass. No matter how bad it is. Actually, I want us to look at our verse. Our final time we're going to look at our June verse of the month. This sets the plate for what we're about to see. Let us all recite together, and if you've been memorizing it, and you can look me in the eye, that would be awesome. And all, if you can't, let's get it in our minds, because we need to be meditating. Our verse of the month, June verse, let's say it together. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear What can man do to me? If that actually grips you, if you appropriate that to the bottom of your being, that God is always with you 
and has a purpose in everything, every evil encounter you're going to face going forward, if you become enchanted, intoxicated, infatuated with God's purposeful sovereignty in your life, it's going to change absolutely everything about how you see the world and how you live. How so, Joel? You will have stability in suffering. You will have trust in trials. You will have faith in the fire. And as we'll see here in Esther today, you'll have courage to confront and to contend with conviction to do the right thing. So let's pray first for the Spirit of God to help us, convince us through the Word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, will you teach us from your Word to serve you as you deserve, to be willing to give and not count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and to not seek for rest, to labor and to not look for reward here, save that of knowing and doing your holy will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so they might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther told Hathak, spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, 
and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So did we take in how this scene starts? We may not have. Let me help us. Verse 1, the first sound of our Esther 4 scene is a loud and bitter cry. Some of us are laughing, but if you believed I was that upset, how would you feel about that? Did it make you uncomfortable and easy? Would you be able to do that in church? Why not? Do you realize that the very first sound each and every person in here made, the very first sound that you ever made was the loudest scream that our newborn lungs could manage. Our little arms were flailing about. The moment we were born, why is that? The Bible tells us that we were born into a world of sin and trauma. Genesis 3. Labor. God declared labor would be painful. The moment Adam and Eve first allowed sin and Satan to enter into our world. This is the normal response of human beings to cry in this world. Yet from day one, aren't we all told, shh, don't cry, it's okay. Our first heading is Mordecai's mourning. Mordecai's mourning. Let's really take in this first scene. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, and that means he's just gotten one of the flyers that's being passed out publicly through all the provinces with the king's signature declaring a countdown has begun for the extermination of all his people. All his people, gone. He rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. What's that all about, Joel? Well, that's the Jewish way of displaying outwardly what is going on inwardly. You see, Mordecai doesn't want anybody walking up to him today and saying, Hey, beautiful day. He doesn't want anybody coming up and saying, How are you doing today? Mordecai wants the entire world to see that he is heartbroken. That's why in verse 6 we see he walks out in the open square of the city and he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. What, what would you think right now if you saw her loud screaming outside, just outside the door? And you saw a growing man standing out there with ripped clothes, screaming and beating his chest. Let's be honest, we'd all be asking, Joel, can we leave out the back door today? But isn't Mordecai's response proper? Millions of his people scheduled for slaughter. Oh, and it's his fault. Now, yes, the final solution is Haman's wicked scheme. But Haman's plan was hatched when Mordecai refused to bow before Haman. His descent was the spark that ignited Haman's hatred and the final solution. This is why he's crying out in absolute anguish. Now, some of us may be taught in church early on by well-meaning believers that Mordecai should not be carrying on so. 
this public display of grief. Mordecai, this shows a lack of faith. In fact, what are you professing in verse 14? You say, you profess, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews, will rise for the Jews. If Mordecai believes that, why isn't Mordecai singing like we just did? All you who pain and sorrow bear, praise God and on him cast your care. Hallelujah. Why will he let Haman and the entire world see him in this condition, inconsolate, weeping, snot running down his face, okay? If he's so sure of his salvation, why doesn't he see this edict and start singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Hey, and if Haman doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. Well, friends, we do need those songs, right? That lift us up to heaven. But when we're living in an evil world and evil happens down here, we also need to sing sad songs. We need to lament. What's lament? Mark Frogop, he defines lament as this. A prayer of pain that leads to trust. A prayer of pain that leads to trust. Then to the sermon, we're actually going to sing a modern take on Psalm 42. It's a song that laments life in a broken world. And you know brokenness, sorrow? Ever think you should sing to yourself, Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in him who saves you. When all the fires have all grown cold, Cause this heart to praise you. You know, God gave us a hymn book, 150 psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible. And about half of them are laments. Half of the inspired songs God gave us to sing are laments. There's actually a book called Lamentations. Gloria's reading on right now. It's super dark, except right at the very middle when we sing, Great is thy faithfulness. That's where we get the song from. Tender mercies new every morning. But you've got to walk through a lot of darkness to get there. We see that Mordecai's people, the Jews, they're actually well-practiced in lamenting. Our society doesn't do very well, though, with community lamenting. Partly because we're so sheltered from the kind of pain we see in Esther 4. We're so sheltered. I think perhaps the closest we can get is 9-11, for those of us who remember. Remember the towers went down? Thousands of people died. Saturday Night Live producers, they didn't know how to open. They're live from New York. It's Saturday Night Live. Because, you know, they always start, if you're familiar with the show, they start with a parody of the biggest news of the day. What do you do when the news of the day is thousands of your neighbors just perish and you don't know what's coming next? Anybody remember what they did? They started a show with Paul Simon singing The Boxer. I am just a poor boy, though my story's seldom told. This is a song about running scared, laying low, anger, shame, seeking comfort in really bad ways. That's a story seldom told because our society doesn't want to admit our poverty. And the song ended, they asked Mary Giuliani, hey, can we be funny now? And Giuliani quipped, why start now? And everybody laughs because we all fear for crying for too long. We can't let that go on too long. Friends, I love our Bibles because the Bible is real about our tragedy. It is real with us about our world. And God wants his people to be real with him. Verse 3, there is great mourning by the Jews in every province. 
127 provinces. This is all over the world. Fasting, weeping, lamenting. Oh, and by the way, the author is quoting Joel 2 here. We just heard that in our call to confess. Joel sounds the alarm. The day of the Lord, judgment day is coming. Do we believe that? And he commands them to fast, to weep, and to mourn. Why? Why? I love the answer because God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from calamity. You see, grief is not opposed to faith. God gave us our emotions as heavenly homing beacons. God gave us emotions to move us towards him, all emotions. You hear the word motion in emotion? But we live in a secular society that avoids any hurts that can lead us to our healer, our heavenly healer. We live in a society that does everything to laugh off or numb pain. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not against laughing, and I'm not against medication. Most of you know I tell wonderful cat jokes, and I work at the hospital. My point is that the church should actually be the ones that lead the way in communal lamenting, especially in times of crisis. But most of the American church is largely unpracticed in grieving, partly because we've lost the laments. Most modern Christian songs, I actually listened to the radio a little bit this week, they're not like half of the Bible songs. Most churches you walk in, you'll find a steady diet of jolly choruses and well-dressed smiley people. What we're telling the world is that the normal Christian life is one long, triumphant street party. That's what we're telling them. Carl Truman says that. And the first problem there is then we actually don't have any answer. We have no gospel when crises do hit. The gospel is actually that resurrection glory comes after the cross, after trials, after much grieving. What happens when you and I don't know how to grieve with others to God? Well, either we grumble at God or we grumble about other people who we make out to be in control, not God. We, if we don't grieve, we will grumble. That's actually what a whole lot of churches, neighbors that I talked to, what they saw about the church when COVID hit. They didn't see a grieving church. They saw a grumbling church. Now, I know that might hit close to home for some of us, and I grant that we'll li we live in a confusing day, and we have a lot of questions about our government. Oh, wait, that's how chapter 3 ended. Susan in a state of confusion over government actions that make no sense. See how Esther and Mordecai are helped to us today? Grieving is part of our getting aligned. This is the big point with God's sovereign purposes. When we learn to grieve, we're aligning ourselves with God's sovereign purposes in our history for such a time as ours. Friends, I believe there's such opportunity in our day, even as so many people around are amusing themselves to death. We know what's going on inside. Our culture is in crisis. You know, folks, who comes to mind? I'm delighted at what God's creating here at Heart City. Folks are discovering a place where we can share our burdens with one another. I was just doing that before the service started outside, where we can grieve together. You know what's wonderful about this church? We're showing them Jesus. Our Bible describes Jesus as what? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus lived his life with a full range of human emotions. Yes, he was happy. 
but he was also sad. Jesus, yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully human. In fact, Jesus was more fully human than any of us here because he wasn't infected with sin like we are, which is why he found it so easy to grieve in our broken world. Remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? Jesus wept and people were like, wow, look at how much he loved him. Which is remarkable, actually, you think that he's weeping here because in a moment he knows he's going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Sort of like Mordecai here. Weeping, even though he fully believes God's going to deliver the Jews. Mordecai is an emotionally healthy person. Unlike Esther, who I would say is much like our society today. Our second heading is Esther's isolation. Notice that Esther hears about Mordecai's public grieving and she is deeply distressed. And actually the Hebrew here, I prefer the legacy standard translation. It reads, she writhed in great anguish. She doesn't know what to do with this. Now at this point, she's been oblivious. She is actually the last Jew on the planet to get the news flash. She has absolutely no clue about the decree. Now this is not her fault. She lives in the king's palace. It's like it's a hermetically sealed harem. That's where she is. It's been the case now for about five years. That's where we're at in the story of Esther. The moment that she was abducted, she was taken into the king's quarters, she became his property. And she's not allowed to venture freely. She has no outside contact. Mordecai can't text, can't call. She has no social media. She can't get on the internet. And as the king's plaything, what do you think the environment's like there? It's not encouraging her to think. Not encouraging her in ethics, right? She exists to look good and to please her husband. Huh. Anybody think Persia is not so far removed from today? You know anybody who spends their whole life fretting over their faces and their figures? Sadly, when we focus so much on that, we become blissfully unaware of the suffering going on all around us when we're so self-focused. But for Esther, not on this appointed day because God has sovereignly purposed to open her eyes. Esther hears the news of Mordecai and she's mortified. She doesn't know what to make of his grief or her own for that matter. So what does she do? She buys him a new wardrobe. Apparently the Persians were not as fashionable as we are today. She's not into the ripped clothes, you know, and everything. Uh, actually, Danny came in earlier, parent apparently. People on her day, they pay good money for ripped clothes, right? Maybe some of you are kind of happy uh, about Mordecai's ripped clothes. You can put them on your Sunday best list. You can come to church next Sunday wearing your ripped clothes. I digress. Why does Esther send Mordecai new clothes? I'll offer a few suggestions. First being shopping therapy. We do this, don't we? <laughs> you try to heal what feels wrong inside by dressing up the outside really nice. And then you can look at yourself, I'm okay. That's nothing new. We've learned this in Persia, right? It's a culture fixated on the externals. Men are measured by their money and their muscle, their power. Women by their beauty and their sex appeal. Here, Mordecai, try on this new suit. It'll make you feel all better. Now, it may also be she's trying to protect Mordecai. Mordecai's loud cries right here at the city gates, his ripped clothes, this close proximity could be seen as potentially rebellious. What if the king hears about this? In either case, Esther's isolation leaves her oblivious to the practice of grieving. She doesn't know how to do it, and it upsets her. She doesn't want to go on anymore. See, again, 
the danger of being too impacted by our culture. But God is at work. God is at work in Esther's life and, and in ours as well. We're here today opening her eyes through his word. Esther sends Hathak first to Mordecai and then he shares the news. copy of the edict actually gives it to her. Mordecai tells Hathak to command Esther, verse 8, to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. I confess, I like to put myself in the shoes of all the Bible people here. There's only three, really. I find myself intrigued by Hathak, a pagan Gentile who is witnessing God's people in crisis, in the crucible, and who witnesses firsthand how God uses this pair to save his people and also to change all of human history. Later on, we're actually going to hear a whole bunch of Persians declare themselves to be Jews. I can't help but wonder, Hathak's watching this, witnessing this firsthand. Has he become a convert? I'm looking for him in heaven when I get there. I'm going to find that Hathak if he's there. Hathak, he's overlooked. But he's crucial to this story. And by the way, this has got to be the most uneventful day of his whole life, right? He's sent off to the, you know, get a message from the queen, you know, and everything. No big deal, right? Next thing he knows, he's privy to information about government corruption at the highest level. But before the weight of all that can even sink in, Mordecai reveals to him that his queen is a Jew, and King Xerxes is completely clueless the fact that he just decreed her death. <laughs> How would you like to be Hathak, the servant bearing the biggest secret in all the empire of Persia? He heads back to Esther with Mordecai's command. <laughs> Imagine the weight. And what does Esther say to him? No way. Not going to do it. She's going to set the record straight. She says, look, I don't have the kind of pull that Mordecai thinks I have. I'm not the apple of the king's eye anymore. By the way, she's a lot older, right? She's no longer a teenager. They've been married five years, and he hasn't asked to see her in a whole month. Esther says, you just don't go to see him when you want. There are only a handful of men, like seven of them, who had access all the time to King Ahasuerus outside of an appointment. Esther says, no way. Mordecai, sorry about the edict, but to approach the king, that's suicide. Do you think this is a game? You've never played Persian chess where the queen has no power. If I make a move, if I make a power play, it's over for me. I'm only a pawn. What do you think of her response? No way. It encourages me greatly. I am so encouraged. I'm so glad for a Bible. I don't even know where mine went. I have a Bible somewhere around here. I'm so glad for a Bible that's filled with folks who do not get it right right away. You hear a lot of sermons, dare to be a Daniel, dare to be a... It's like, no, these are people who struggle. People who are a lot like me. Last week I was afraid when I encountered some people. I was in scared to go to certain places. Things came at me and I'm like, I can relate to Esther. I hope you can. Because I hear God's call in my life and oftentimes my very first response is, no way, <laughs> not going to do it. Wonderfully, God doesn't give up on us. And he places also folks in our lives who don't give up on us. You have somebody like that in your life? Mordecai won't take no for an answer. Verse 13. He says, 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. That's a compelling argument, don't you think? He gives her a double reality check that demands a decision. Reality number one, God will bring relief and deliverance to his people. He made a promise, Genesis 3.15, Satan will not win. Esther stands here actually at the final historical book in the Bible, and there are hundreds of stories that she knows about God proving himself faithful to his promise. Reality check number two, you can refuse to risk your life right now to save us, but you're not going to escape death. Uh, With Haman the horrible in power, how long do you think you're going to be able to remain in hiding about this? She needs to make a choice. Maybe you do too today. God's word is coming to you today, no less than Esther. And you have a decision. Are you going to continue to live as a pagan? Or will you identify with God's people? Death is coming for all of us here. Today is the day of salvation. Will you continue to live as a pagan, identify as a pagan, and then die? Do you think Jesus will say to you on that great day, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. Jesus is inviting each of us to take up the cross, to be forgiven all our sins, to do mattering things that are hard, and then to have certainty of salvation from the moment you first believe. Don't wait. I know some of us have made a decision for Christ, but too often we continue to think and live like the world. We have two identities. Actually, Esther is the only person in this whole story that has two identities. With the Jews, she's Hadassah. With the pagans, she's Esther. Publicly, she's not identifying with the people of God. It's the day of decision. The day of decision for some of us as well. Will she and will we remember who we are and who we belong to? Or will we and will she only do what's right when it becomes too painful to do what's wrong? I know I'm speaking to someone here, maybe someone online. Let me offer you some more encouragement. God's purposeful sovereignty, which is what this whole story is about. Our final heading is Esther's elevation. After the double reality check, Mordecai asked this question. I love it. Who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This is a question about God's purposeful sovereignty and your particular calling. Each and every one of us, I'm looking at all of us here, we all have a unique calling. God has made us unique, fashioned us, placed us in a certain place and position He has something he's given that only you can do. Only you can do. That makes it all about you, even though it's all about God. And I know that the world and the devil is doing everything they can to steal that away from you. You and I, yes, we're not likely to be in position to save the human race. But God has gifted each and every one of us and positioned us where we're at right now to do mattering things. What could be better 
than you today saying, I'm going to embrace my call and leave this world a better place after I die. Advance Christ's cause. Don't you want to do something mattering here on earth before you die? Amen. Sort of like our Savior Jesus. So what is your call? What is God's sovereign purpose in your life? Who knows? I don't. You may not know. I love the question. Who knows? We can't know all of God's will. But we do know that he is gracious when we actually step out there and we seek it. A good way to start is to consider, where has God positioned me? What are my God-given gifts? I mean, that's the question for us all, right? I am able to win wonderful favor with people. I've got a beautiful face. I've got a fine figure. Mike, we're not talking about me. We're talking about Esther right now, okay? (laughs) I have to look at the community God has placed me in, what I have at my disposal. Now, I don't simply just jump in with two feet. No, we need to slow down. We start by seeking God's help, as Esther does here. Three days, fasting, praying, seeking God's will. We ask others to do the same for us. Or better, maybe it's okay. Go command somebody to pray and fast for you. Do you notice the shift here? Mordecai was doing the commanding. Now Esther is doing the commanding. You see her elevation? She's embracing her calling, the God-given position that he has given her as queen. Esther is blowing the trumpet in Zion. And she's commanding a citywide fast for three days. We see Esther's elevation, but also we see her humility. Who knows? Esther has no guarantee. God may not save her. And maybe many of the Jews will die before God delivers. Who knows? Only God. Only God can give her success. But exaltation only comes after humility. We have to humble ourselves. That's why our final words to Mordecai, and if I perish, I perish. There's a prompt to prayer. With those closing words, this brave woman, I love it, she gives God's people, including us, just this is a great end to chapter 4. Because here we see a dim picture of our Lord Jesus Christ who offered his life to save you, to save you. Except Jesus didn't preface his speech with a if. You realize Jesus at Gethsemane and then at the cross said, Jesus, for Rex, for Jesse, for Lucinda, I perish. I perish. I perish for you. Nobody has ever loved you more or better than Jesus Christ, who left his royal place to come identify with us. And he died in order to save you. The coming judgment is going to be bad. Have you taken in his great love that he took that judgment on himself? One final application as I close. It's from an ancient church father, Augustine. He writes, For if Queen Esther prayed, when she was about to speak to the king touching the temporal welfare of her race, that God would put fit words into her mouth, how much more ought he to pray for the same blessings who labors in word and doctrine for the eternal salvation of men. It's in his book, Christian Doctrine, book four. What Augustine is saying is that if Esther prayed to God for words to bring temporary salvation to his people, how much more ought we be praying to God for pastors, 
be able to bring the same blessing when the stakes are so much higher. The eternal salvation of men, women, boys, and girls. That means you pray for pastors, you pray for me for your benefit. And you're praying for me and other pastors will have benefit if we're praying. We see it here in Esther, we're going to find out. And we can extend that to one another because we all have opportunities to save souls that God has positioned in your life all around you. I know many of us may not yet know our calling, what God wants us to do right now. But you can be doing one thing for sure, interceding for those who are in the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying. Let me ask you, what more mattering thing could you be doing? God's word commands us. Jesus commands us. But I don't like to say it that way to close. I prefer to see Jesus privileges us to pray for the salvation of others and then to witness it happen. So I want to encourage you one more time to come to our prayer meeting later today or to spend time in prayer this afternoon because praying is a most mattering thing. Who knows? God may use your prayer this afternoon to bring a hurting soul out of judgment and into the kingdom of his beloved son where we find redemption and the forgiveness of our sins, a forever salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, most merciful Father, what a glorious thing you have done in the sending of your son who took upon himself the judgment we, we were owed for our sins. We marvel that you poured out your spirit on all flesh and that we stand here on the other side of the globe witnessing Gentiles, even us, being grafted into Abraham's family. We thank you that you're gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting over disaster. We know that on the eve of his own judgment day, your son told his disciples to watch and pray. Father, we confess our spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is weak. We confess we find ourselves so easily getting sleepy. And some of us may even be experiencing your judgment right now because we have been lazy for much of our lives and failed to take up our cross. Have mercy on us, Lord, for our failure to appreciate the gravity of our sin and our situation and for ignoring the patience you have and not wanting anyone to perish. Make haste, O God, to save us from ourselves that we might go out into the world as your disciples, honoring you in what you've called us to do in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And give us eyes the whole while to see your Son and hearts that love Jesus more and more. And give us also eyes to see his image in everyone we meet and hearts that love them and seek for their restoration. Awaken our ears that we may speak with instructed tongues, able to sustain the weary with a word, showing the compassion you've shown to us. We long to see your churches full, Lord, because we long to see your name hallowed, your kingdom come, and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.